You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Intelsat and SES said back in March that they were just talking about merging. If it happened, these two giants, already two of the biggest players in the satellite communications world, would make a veritable $10 billion satellite colossus. But yesterday, both parties walked away from merger talks, saying, you know, thanks for the chat, but I'm just not feeling it. T-minus. Today is June 22nd, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-Minus. Intelsat and SES call things off. An anomaly affects the otter pup. Russian hackers say they've got Maxar satellite access for sale. SDA taps SAIC to make an app store for BMC3 LEO satellites. And yes, we'll translate that for you. And my interview today is with Kim Masharia, executive director at the Space Prize Foundation on space education and empowering women to participate in the space economy. Stay with us. And on to our Intel briefing for today. It's not you, it's me. Or maybe it is you. Satellite communications giants Intelsat and SES, both based in Luxembourg, after months of talks, are deciding to not merge. The two satellite communications companies confirmed yesterday that they're ending merger negotiations. These two companies are massive players in the satellite field, and a merger would have made a behemoth of a company in a transaction that would have potentially been worth around 10 billion U.S. dollars. This merger may have helped to fend off the growing competition in the field that's likely nipping at their heels, while overall revenues for satellite communications continue to contract a bit year over year. It's worth a quick compare and contrast to other similar deals and satcoms that have gone through. Just a few weeks ago, in fact, competitors Viasat of the U.S. and Inmarsat of the U.K., successfully completed their own merger deal, and it was valued at about 7.3 billion U.S. dollars. 
Plus, last year, Utelsat of France and OneWeb of the UK also announced their own $3.4 billion merger. In the meantime, Intelsat and SES remain rivals. Or perhaps we should say after this failed merger talk, frenemies? Now, friends of the show Starfish Space and Launcher provided an update yesterday on the status of the Otter Pup, a testbed for the company's in-space satellite servicing capabilities. The Otter Pup, which was stacked on top of Launcher's Orbiter SN3, launched on the June 12th Transporter 8 mission and was meant to test key technology invented by the Starfish team, including satellite rendezvous, proximity operations, and docking capabilities. According to the update from the two companies, after Orbiter separated from the rideshare, it, quote, experienced an anomaly which induced a high rotation rate, far outside the bounds of normal operating conditions. After an emergency deployment of Otter Pup from the Orbiter, ground stations were able to make contact with the Otter Pup, but it is also experiencing excessive rotation. Right now, the companies say that it's unlikely that the Otter Pup will be able to continue with its mission, but they are still trying to stabilize it, so they aren't giving up hope yet. And I know it's not the update anyone wanted for this mission, and we applaud both companies for their transparency about this situation. Now, we've spent a good deal of time with Trevor, Austin, and Michael at Starfish, and we can tell you firsthand that they are the sort of people who won't let any setback get in their way. We here at T-Minus wish them the best and are rooting for the Otter Pup. And now an update from our N2K colleagues over at the CyberWire that's of particular interest to us here at T-Minus. Access to a U.S. satellite is being hawked in a Russophone cybercrime forum. HackRead reports that a Russian-speaking hacker is offering access to a Maxar Technologies U.S. military satellite for $15,000. The account posting the offer, Labs666, offers to receive funds through the trusted third-party payment service, Escrow. Now, it's difficult to know what to make of the claim, which seems a little excessive for credibility. This could be a hoax, or it could be legitimate. And as soon as we hear any updates, credible ones, that is, we will be sure to let you know. The Space Security Defense Program, which is a collaboration between the Space Force and the National Reconnaissance Office, is hosting an unclassified brainstorming event focused on the U.S.'s role in future space conflicts. Participants from industry, academia, and government are invited to explore solutions to key challenges in the rapidly evolving space environment, such as the rise of AI, information manipulation, and adversary space capabilities. The conference will examine multi-domain solutions to threats across all space operations, including ground, link, and on orbit. The event, which is the first Innovation Foundry event, organized by the Space Security Defense Program, will take place from August 22nd to the 24th in Tampa, Florida, and applications are due by July 16th. And a link to apply, if you're interested, is in our show notes, which is space.n2k.com. Now, we told you at the top of the show we'd translate this acronym SALAD for you, so here goes. The Space Force's SDA, or Space Development Agency, has selected SAIC, and yes, that's technically an acronym, but that's really their company name, to build a cloud-based application factory for designing, testing, and deploying cyber-resilient battle management command and control communications, known as BMC3 software, for LEO, or Low Earth Orbit, satellites. Likened to Apple's app verification process, the environment will support in-space satellite upgrades. 
The application factory will develop and validate what it's calling compute modules that allow satellites in the proliferated warfighter space architecture, or PWSA, to exchange data. Now, this initiative is part of the SDA's plans to launch its first data transport satellites in 2024, contributing to the Defense Department's joint all-domain command and control concept for linking sensors and shooters across all military services. In related news, the artist formerly known as Raytheon Technologies, now called RTX, has chosen Mineric to provide optical communications terminals for the Space Development Agency's Tranche 1 tracking layer program. The seven-satellite mission awarded to RTX earlier this year will use Mineric's Condor Mark III terminals. Deliveries are expected to take place in 2024. The program aims to identify and track hypersonic weapons and advanced missiles, with the satellite constellation offering missile warning and tracking capabilities to the U.S. Department of Defense. Mineric's Condor terminals will also supply Northrop Grumman's 14 satellites for the same Tranche 1 tracking layer program. And in the show notes, we've also included a deep dive from the Aerospace Corporation on the Space Force 2024 budget request. If RDT&E and manpower trends are your thing, be sure to check it out. Space News is reporting that North Star Earth and Space has signed a multi-launch contract with Rocket Lab to deploy its space situational awareness satellites. The agreement follows the bankruptcy of Virgin Orbit, the original launch provider. Rocket Lab will launch North Star's first four satellites in fall 2023. The satellites, provided by Spire Global, will contribute to a platform tracking objects as small as 5 centimeters in low Earth orbit. At least 12 satellites are needed for full commercial services, and North Star's deal with Spire includes options for up to 30 satellites. The agreement with Rocket Lab also encompasses two additional missions that could launch as early as 2024. Testifying before Congress yesterday, Tom Straup, president of the Satellite Industry Association, called for financial incentives, funding, and regulatory changes to boost satellite technologies for rural areas. Straup emphasized the vital role of satellite technology in enabling next-generation farming, broadband access, and robust IoT connectivity for agriculture. Costs are dropping for both space and ground systems, which has resulted in a decrease in the cost of capacity of 90% over the past eight years. Most importantly, satellite services are available now across the entire country without the need for additional build-out. As the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation notes, no single broadband technology holds all the advantages. With finite resources and widely varying topography, we need a flexible combination of all available access technologies to bridge the digital divide. In order to further he proposed a seven-point strategy, financial incentives for rural broadband expansion, funding for satellite broadband and IoT in rural areas, technology-inclusive program requirements, streamlined regulations, spectrum protection, private-public partnerships, and investing in satellite R&D. NASA has opened the Earth Information Center at its headquarters, a public facility aimed at showcasing the data collected by its Earth science spacecraft. The EIC's goal is to make NASA's crucial environmental data more accessible to the public and decision-making agencies, such as the Department of Agriculture, the Environmental Protection Agency, and FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. However, funding for future Earth science missions, including the Earth System Observatory, is uncertain 
due to fiscal constraints and the recent debt ceiling agreement. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson has stated that while science missions will continue, some may be delayed depending on final appropriations. And welcome to the Artemis Accords, Ecuador, now the 26th country to sign the Cooperative Principles Guiding Space Exploration. The agreement was signed by Gustavo Manrique Miranda, Ecuador's Foreign Affairs Minister, and Karen Feldstein, NASA's Associate Administrator for International and Interagency Relations. Space News reports that tech startup Dante has emerged from stealth, announcing a $2.75 million pre-seed funding round. Dante is building a search engine for geospatial data to help users access information about Earth's locations using natural language. Led by TechSquare Ventures, the round will be used to fast-track the development of Dante's search engine for U.S. intelligence agencies and early commercial customers. The firm recently secured a $75,000 prize from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency for an application that assists non-expert users in processing geospatial data into actionable intelligence. On a somber note, Virgin Galactic announced that Evan Lavelle, the chair of the company's board of directors, died unexpectedly following an illness on June 20th. Mr. Lavelle joined the company's board in October 2019 and was appointed chair in April after serving as interim chair since February 2022. Ray Mavis, former secretary of the U.S. Navy, will serve as interim chair. Rest in peace, Mr. Lavelle. And a brief shout-out for everybody's favorite orange behemoth, the ULA Delta IV Heavy had a successful launch last night, which marks the second-to-last time we'll see that big guy go. It had a classified satellite for the NRO aboard, the NROL-68 mission, nicknamed Nusquam Celare, meaning nowhere to hide. And that rounds it out for today's Intel Briefing. Stay with us for my conversation with Space Prize Foundation Executive Director Kim Masharia. Hey, T-Minus crew. If your business is looking to grow your voice in the industry, expand the reach of your thought leadership, or recruit talent, T-Minus can help. We'd like to hear from you. Send us an email at space at n2k.com or send us a note through our website so we can connect about building a program to meet your goals. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Kim Masharia, 
who is the executive director at the Space Prize Foundation. She's a diversity and inclusion advocate, and she's working to empower women to participate in the space economy. One of the many ways she's doing that is through the Space Prize Foundation. So I started by asking her to tell me a little bit more about it. Hi, my name is Kim Asharia, and I am a diversity and inclusion advocate within the space sector. The Space Prize is a nonprofit that's relatively new. I feel like I keep saying that, but we've been around for about a year and a half now. So we've been able to launch some really fun initiatives around gender equity and this notion of universal space literacy since our inception. When we were founded, we, we actually had a contest planned that I got to spearhead over here in New York. We ran a space prize challenge, as we like to call them, uh, for high school girls. And we gave away a zero-G flight, plus a bunch of other amazing perks that I wish I could have had when I was a kid, um, to five deserving women. They were uh, each, each student was from a different borough in here in New York City. And after that contest, we expanded to Paris and Portugal. We're hoping to do some more cities this year, different countries. And we also have free education curriculum that we distribute to teachers and students around the globe. What kind of barriers are young women encountering today that um, may be keeping them out of an industry that they're very interested in, specifically the space industry? I believe that some young women tend to to second-guess themselves when it comes to their own ability to exceed and excel in an industry that is viewed as being a bit elite and elusive and a boys club, right? I think that it's more of a cultural mindset shift that has to take place in order for us to see some significant change happen in the pipeline in that area. Because when I work with these young women, they're still excelling, right? In all of these same areas that young men are excelling in. So that's not really the issue. They just seem to to have more doubts around themselves. They struggle more to find the right support, mentorship especially, which is why as a part of our program, each of our, our winners from our New York City contest, they got a year of mentorship from a leading woman in the aerospace sector. And I thought that, that that's really what I that's what excited me the most about getting to work on, on this specific program was that aspect. And we've also been able to bring in leaders from, from the space sector to engage with the girls directly outside of our mentorship program. For instance, we had a round private roundtable session with the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., and the young women got to speak to to the ambassador about the relevance of the SDGs as it relates to space exploration and space flight. And watching them feel empowered and, and seeing the positive reaction that they were getting from the ambassador, that's the exact kind of, you know, confidence boost that I think these young women needed in order to believe that they really can continue what after their uh, participation in our program to pursue something in the space sector because they feel like they have a chance to make a genuine, valuable contribution to the industry. That's so important because uh, that that second guessing, uh, I mean, it, it holds people back before they even get a chance to start. And something that we were chatting about before we, we started recording interview is uh, I'm of an age where I remember <laughs> when a lot of these discussions were becoming a lot bigger about getting more women, more underrepresented groups into space. and even at my age, I'm like, the, the needle hasn't moved as much as I would have thought. And there are so many thoughts on, on why this is the case, but I'm curious to get your opinion on, on what's, what's going on. Like, why, how, why are we still seemingly stuck here? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the numbers, about 20% of the industry's workforce is made up of women. And that number has 
hardly shifted over the last two to three decades, which is quite unfortunate. And I believe that there's an issue when it comes to women getting promoted once you're in that mid-level position to getting senior level positions. And if we don't, again, going back to like the notion of needing to see representation and have mentorship from folks who have been there, done that, there aren't a lot of women who get the chance to make it to those C-suite positions, not because there aren't plenty of qualified women out there, because they're not being properly considered and evaluated for the positions. If you talk to some folks who are who are in the recruiting business for, for positions of that caliber, they often don't have women on their list of, of top candidates that they are automatically beginning to consider. And I think that not enough effort and programming and such has been developed in order to tackle that issue within the pipeline. There are plenty of, of fantastic programs available for young women in high school and college now even, but I think we're neglecting the importance of that mid-level to senior level transition and the support that's needed in order to enable that proper increase that we want to see in, in with rep- women being represented in senior level positions. And I think if we could have that increase happen, that'll also help us again to tackle the issue that we see at earlier points in the pipeline. This brings up a point that uh, comes up a lot also in discussions about retention. A lot of folks get completely burnt out. Many, many people of color, many women just kind of find like it's just not a comfortable place or just for many sorts of reasons don't want to stay anymore. And that's a huge cultural shift. What should companies be thinking about doing there? Not an easy problem, but what? any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think some of the, the similar structures and fellowships and such that have been set up for students of, of younger generations can easily, relatively easily be translated into creating programs that can assist, again, that, that difficult transition of mid to senior level positioned folks. I know the Carmen Fellowship, I feel like, does a really great job at promoting young leaders who are on the cusp of being able to have those opportunities. But I, th- I think many other companies could, could model programs after things at the Carmen Fellowship in order to assist at that gap. That and also providing solid resources to their employees to the inception of the company. I think diversity often isn't baked into the foundation of a company. And I think more companies are trying to, to do that but once you're kind of already established, it's more of an uphill battle. I mean, last year I was serving as the chair of the Space Frontier Foundation and we had a special competition that we ran at the International Space Development Conference over in D.C. that year. And we had a competition that was around supporting diverse founders specifically. And we had workshops and such for the students to think about how they can, again, bake in inclusion and diversity into the very foundations of the companies that they would like to create. And they were quite receptive to it. So I I think it's also a matter of simply being exposed to best practices because most folks also struggle with the, how do I go about doing this in my business? And once they get to a point of struggling a little bit too long, they kind of, not wouldn't say give up, but they, they don't give it as much energy as as it properly yeah. deserves because you know we work in the space sector space is is very very hard there's so many problems and things breaking down all the time and makes sense why folks may put a complex nuanced issue like DEI over in the corner but i think as many of us know innovation is extremely enhanced by having a diverse workforce and so it needs to be prioritized from the beginning if you want to have a company that can stand the test of time 
I'm going to go back to uh, Space Prize Foundation for a moment because I thought it was fascinating that um, it has an international focus and that it's continuing to to grow in an inter- international scale. Being an American, a lot of my conversations tend to be very U.S. focused, but are the challenges in other countries and other parts of the world, are they very different than um, the ones that maybe we have in the United States for um, trying to get more women involved in, more people of color involved in the aerospace industry? Absolutely. I mean, it's a blessing to be an active member of a space community within a country like the U.S. We have a fantastic public space program and amazing private companies that are breaking barriers and transforming the way in which our world works every single day. And unfortunately, a number of other countries can't say the same thing. Although the global space economy will become more reliant on diverse non-traditional stakeholders in the very near future, right now, folks who have a desire to engage in the world of space, don't have that support. They don't have access to resources. And a lot of them don't know where to start. They have their passion and that's enough to get them, you know, taking a few steps forward. But then it comes to a certain point where they do need extra support. And because I believe that the space sector is a unique industry that affects countless aspects of our daily lives as global citizens, but it's also it's also very young and it has a lot of unique entry points for new actors to, to participate. Um, I'm really, really passionate about ensuring that folks from uh, non-space flying countries uh, can, can actually access the industry. And so reaching out to uh, folks in other countries is really, really important to us. And right now we're starting to do that through the promotion of our education curriculum because we think that's, you know, a fantastic resource that we can use to get young folks excited. I remember I, I spoke to a group, uh, I do work with different organizations um, in Africa and with around um, supporting uh, youth STEAM education. And I've had workshops where I've, I've gone to host events and such where it's a Saturday morning and you see on your Zoom screen dozens of classrooms full of like 40 students listening in, hungry for all the knowledge you have to give them. And it's truly savoring the opportunity to be around um, industry members who are willing to share their time and, and help them map out what the future could look like. And so it's something that I, I think Space Prize will continue to do more of. We're hoping to do more and more workshops and not only that, give, give more unique transformative opportunities to folks in these regions as well. We'll be right back. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome back. And now over to Alice. We are going on Bravo 5. 
Bravo 5. This is T-minus space producer Alice Carruth with the latest news from the 2023 Spaceport America Cup. The first day of launches was marred by weather delays and ant attacks. See yesterday's live stream for evidence of the ants. And we're being attacked by flying ants, which I think you just saw me swatting away from Dustin. But some teams did manage to beat the notorious desert winds. Purdue University led the pack of 10 total rocket launches and only one Cato. That's a catastrophe after takeoff to you and I, before the range was closed. The third team to lift off was the University of College London, who we spoke to in Monday's special edition of our show. Jerome Salverage leads the team for UCL, and I caught up with him after the launch to find out how they were feeling about being third off the pads. Oh, it was, it was really exciting. I remember pitching this to the team at the start of the year and thinking, there's just no way it's going to happen. Um, and then as we got closer and closer and things started falling more into place, like, there was a point where it felt really surreal. I feel really proud of my team. Um, so as soon as we got here, uh, it was four of us, and we worked really well together, I think, setting up everything. Adrian was clearing this area. August was on avionics. I was doing the manufacturing. Jenny was helping with recovery. And um, we wouldn't be here if every single person here was not giving their best. And I think more than anything, the team was looking out for each other. I think it's because of that that we can stand here now and appreciate this victory, not just as a solo victory, but as a group achievement. The UCL team later recovered their rocket in the desert. Initial data suggests that they came within 100 feet of their intended apogee. They're competing in the 10,000-foot category and will now have to wait until the weekend to find out how they performed overall in the competition. Launches continue until Saturday at noon mountain time, and with over 100 teams anxiously waiting to lift off, there's still lots to see between now and then. That's it for T-minus for June 22nd, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector. From the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey all, Rick here. 
At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.